My name is Rory Kennedy, and I am the director and producer of Downfall, the case against Boeing. Boeing has never reached out to us directly. It communicates their lack of remorse, their lack of accountability, and that's infuriating. For them, it was business as usual, but we're the ones who were trying to make sure that other families never have to deal with what we're dealing with. We've met with, I don't know, 55 congressmen and women and senators. It's hard, you go and you relive this 55 times in a row and talk about your daughter dying. This is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week, I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. This week, it is my pleasure to welcome award-winning filmmaker Rory Kennedy, producer and director of the Netflix documentary, Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. Once the pride of American technological know-how... Boeing took a wrong turn toward achieving the bottom line at all costs, even if it meant keeping pilots in the dark and putting passengers' lives at risk. In the end, two Boeing 737 airliners crashed, killing 346 people. Boeing's PR campaign immediately went into action to disparage and cast dispersions on the flight crews and their countries. Luckily, the families and a few intrepid reporters and politicians would not take Boeing's word as final. Join us as we discuss the case against Boeing with Rory, as well as the projects she's working on at the moment, including an unfortunately timely project about refugees. Rory Kennedy, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Everything's fine with me. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, Just to remind our listeners uh, that the the film we're primarily going to be discussing today is uh, Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. It's uh, it's come out this year, and it's now currently streaming on Netflix, which is where I caught it. Um, Rory, maybe the way we usually start off uh, uh, with our guests is maybe you can give our listeners an idea of what Downfall is about, maybe a, a, a synopsis. Yeah, well, Downfall is a documentary, a feature documentary about Boeing and the 737 MAX crashes. These were uh, two airplanes, um, the same model of aircraft, the 737 MAX, which crashed within five months of each other um, in 2019, 2018, 2019, and 346 people died, everybody on board, both of those aircrafts died. So the film is really an investigation as to what happened exactly, um, who knew what, when, who was responsible for these crashes um, with the hopes that we can prevent something like this from ever happening again. Okay. I mean, I th- as you, as you pointed out, basically there was, we don't need to go into the, the detail uh, for the engineers, but there's this faulty system on the on the planes. Is that right? And uh, Boeing was fairly well aware of these things. And there's uh, what you document is this the cover up and deception and corporate greed that all played into this. Is that right? Yeah, basically, 
Um, Boeing was in competition with Airbus. Airbus had come out with a, a, a aircraft that was very popular and was doing quite well in the marketplace. Um, they had a vision initially to create a whole new type of airplane, but they wanted to get something to market quickly to compete with Airbus. And they um, basically repurposed a 50-year-old airframe, a 737, um, that was built in the 1960s. Uh, they put on a new, new engines, which are bigger and more fuel efficient. Mm. They found when they did that, that under certain circumstances, the airplane would stall and wouldn't work properly. And so instead of rebuilding the aircraft, they decided they could fix it with a computer system. That computer system is known as the MCAS. Um, it's connected to one sensor on the outside of the airplane. And if that sensor sensed that the airplane was going at a certain angle, it would push the nose of the plane downwards. But in both of these instances, that sensor was sending bad, erroneous information to the MCAS mm. system. And so even though it was not at a steep incline, it was pushing the nose of the airplane down and doing it over and over again um, and overpowering anything ultimately that the pilots could do about it. Mm. And I mean, there's loads of, well, not loads, but, you know, obviously plenty of docs about uh, corporations taking shortcuts and things like that what was what is it about this case that in your mind makes it so different um and and unique yeah well listen i think most of us fly right and yeah. i think you know even for for the brave and courageous amongst us there yeah. is something odd about being you know flying through the air at 500 miles an hour and this kind of metal object at 30,000 feet high. And so I think somewhere in us, certainly for me, there's some fear of flying, right? And yeah. I think that it's also, you know, imagining the worst that it's, it's, a, it's a horrendous way to think of, of those last few moments of anybody's life to be in an airplane that is on a downward spiral. So I think it's it's kind of um, something that we can all relate to on some level and some part of us is, are all imagine that. Um, hmm. And so I think, you know, for, for me, and I think for most, when you walk down that jetway, you think yeah. the person, the people who made this plane are looking out for our safety, that, you know, the, the regulators, the FAA is doing everything they can do to protect us, that the mm -hmm. Congress and the people we've elected are doing their job to make sure that, that the regulators are empowered mm -hmm. to do their job. And in this case, they all failed us. And, um, and so I think that there's a lot to be learned from, you know, the need to ask questions, to be vigorous, mm. to make demands for all of us to ensure that, you know, these protections hold. Mm. I, I think I, I, I completely agree. I, I certainly have, we all have these fears of flying, but I think one thing that struck me and I think you're, you're the, the film captures it very well. Uh, and I was remembering back to when these crashes happened even and my, f I must admit, I have to say that I kind of bought into the Boeing story at first because um, they had this impeccable reputation. 
didn't they? Uh, and and I think many of us who, for whatever reasons, would have thought, well, yeah, I'm, you know, sure, if Boeing says it's not an issue, you know, these accidents happen. But it, it was far, it was far from it, wasn't it? And and it was kind of the big opening up the sort of the revealing the actuality of what's been going on at Boeing for for a while now. Well, I, you know, it was also an, an, another reason that I was compelled to make this film is that after these two planes crashed and they were, as one of our investigators say in the film, under eerily similar circumstances, you know, my expectation, and then they found the black boxes and there was correlation between the crashes and all that. My expectation was that Boeing would get in front of this, be hugely apologetic. You know, it's like a red flag situation. We are going to, you know, this is, this is, has a a kind of urgency to it Mm. and taking responsibility. We're going to ground this plane. We're going to do everything we can Mm. to figure out what went wrong here. We're going to fix this. This is, you know, there's zero tolerance for this kind of thing. And they didn't really do that. It was much more about, well, the pilots didn't respond the way we thought they would. You know, these pilots were international. How are they trained? There was that kind of thing going on. And it seemed very curious and, you know, not what I wanted to hear from this company in this moment. So I think that was also a, a kind of driving force for me is to really get to the bottom of exactly what happened yeah yeah no i think in in disparaging the pilots and it's lion air which is in indonesia it's ethiopia air you know it's um almost as as you've pointed out it kind of uh they're they're not american well not that so much even they weren't american but almost this idea that these these would be places or airlines that would not be capable of, 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 uh, you know, flying these, these, these planes or not be trained up. Um, but have you, in doing, you know, this was well, this is well publicized. There were these congressional hearings. Um, a lot of, uh, you, you deal with the, uh, you have the journal journalist from wall street journal who broke some of the story. Is there anything you've un- in doing this film? Is there anything you've uncovered that wasn't necessarily public before, or, or what has maybe struck you the most in in actually making the film? Yeah, well, we were making the film as the story was still unfolding. Okay. It was really important to me to, uh, you know, I always think about the word documentary because and and sort of the the origin of that the document right so so i always try to use source material when i'm making a film like this and whether that's Mm. um documents actually Mm. or the people who are on the front lines of this story um and and hearing from them as things are unfolding what they're seeing and what their understanding is. And so, mm. you know, this film really showcases the folks who were who were in the middle of this story, who were on the front lines of it. So whether it's Congressman DeFazio, who led the investigation, mm. the biggest investigation, Congress's Infrastructure and Transportation Committee's history, um, Andy Pastor, who was the dogged journalist who chased down the story from the Wall Street Journal. Michael Stumo, whose daughter mm-hmm. tragically died in the in the second crash, the Ethiopian crash, and became mm-hmm. 
you know, a, an advocate or the folks who are actually at Boeing working on the airplane and helping to understand us understand what the decisions were made at that time. It's and then the the documents. I think you know there part of the story too was that there was such a saturation. There was so much coming out. So mm. part of my job is weeding through that and really finding the material, which is the most important and bringing that to the surface. Mm. It's also a story that played out over the course of a couple of years. Right. So right. to synthesize it into a 90 minute experience for people, because you sort of trickle in a little information here, a little information there. And when you see it all together, I think mm. it tells a much different story. And then I would just add, you know, you could have read about this story, but there's something about seeing the family members in particular, mm. seeing them, you know, with Mullenberg at Congress and how mm. he's not looking at their, looking into their yeah. eyes and looking back at them and they're holding these posters up of their children. That's so powerful and such a deep reminder of what the actual stakes are in this story, you know, that these people died, that they lost their family. Um, so I think kind of the emotional thread is something that is, is, is quite original in this, in this take on, on, and, and kind of what we explore in this film. Yeah, and you mentioned Michael Stumo and uh, so the father of Samuel Rose. Um, the um, I mean, are these these are some of the heroes of this of this tale? If we have heroes, aren't they? Uh, maybe you could tell us. Could you tell us more about that? Because they they didn't take no for for an answer, did they? Many of them, in terms of continuing well, to push they, ahead for answers. And, you know? Yeah, they. I mean, the the family members, you know, have been so extraordinary, and I just have such admiration for them. Michael Stumo, you know, he lost his just beautiful daughter who had committed herself mm. to, to global health and mm. really making the world a better place. There were so many people on both of these airplanes that were really extraordinary activists, mm. um, you know, leaders, people who were committed to, um, to making their surroundings and the people, you know, less suffering in the world. So it's just such an enormous loss on that level, but to have lost, you know, for Michael, his child in this way is just completely unimaginable. And then to learn that it was largely the result of a company and a, you know, a group of people who were driven by profits um, and the, the, and willing to risk his daughter's life to make more money. I, I mean, it's hard to imagine how you just don't get consumed by anger, honestly, in a situation mm. like that, but mm. somehow he's managed to, kind of redirect all of those emotions um, in this extraordinary way of, you know, really holding Congress to account to make sure that we, we find out exactly what happened mm. um, and, and continuing on that effort even today, um, you know, and, and sacrificing so much of his own life. I mean, there's one point in the film where Michael talks about how he's had to tell this story, you know, 54 times to members of Congress. 
And each time it's traumatic. I mean, part of my hope with this film is that he can show the film and he doesn't have to keep yeah. telling the story. I, I mean, I was going to ask you that. I mean, what is it? Because you're making them relive it yet again. by uh, Right. And yeah. I felt very responsible for that. And, I, it, it, you know, it's never something um, that I ask easily of anybody um, because I, yeah. I appreciate the trauma that it can induce in people. In this instance, I really did feel like the film could achieve, uh, you know, along with their efforts and everybody else's efforts could help to achieve something significant. You know, that was always my hope with it and to help people be aware, you know, far and wide of what happened. Because there may have been, you know, there are obviously some people who followed this story as it was happening, but there are many people all mm. in this country, around the world, who didn't follow the story, right? And this allows it to be, I think, a little bit more accessible. Um, and so my really part of my hope is that it will, you know, serve in some way to, to tell the story so that, you know, these family members don't have to keep doing it. Yeah, indeed. And I guess there's also this, I mean, there's many, stra- you know, threads through all this, but uh, we also have this complicit, it's too strong a word, but complicity of the FAA in all this, don't we? I mean, it's it, that was, uh, I think, for me at least, that was fairly enlightening that I hadn't ex- necessarily expected. Is that? Yeah. Uh, well, I think to me, you know, people often ask what what's the thing that was most damning um, that that we you know yeah. found in the making of this film, and I would say that the Tarim report. Which was yeah. um, which was supported by the FAA and was a a, a technical report that um, came out after the first crash and before the second crash that uh, concluded that this aircraft had a likelihood of crashing catastrophic crashes fifteen times over the course of its lifetime, which would be average out to once every two years. Mm-hmm. Catastrophic crash means that the plane would crash and everybody on it would die. And that the FAA and Boeing made the decision after that first crash to keep the plane up in the air with the hope that they would be able to fix it before one of these next crashes happened. And so they were basically banking on this and betting against human lives Mm. because of financial interests to keep that plane up in the air. And, you know, the FAA was complicitous in that decision. Um, Mm. Boeing was a part of that, you know, they were the drivers Mm. of that choice. So that to me, you know, especially when you think about Michael Sumo and all the other family members who had children or uh, husbands or wives or mothers or daughter on that plane. The, 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 the horror of that is mm. unspeakable. And I mean, I think probably the answer maybe is very obvious and very simple, but what drives people to make decisions like that? I mean, you know, we all fly. We, most of us do at least, uh, we all have family. We all, you know, to, to see something like that, that, the likelihood of there being a catastrophic accidents on numerous occasions, and then just to keep the, keep the planes in the air. That my friend is a question for those executives of going, <laughs> I mean, I can not 
in my soul of souls answer that question. I mean, it's not like they're a poorly paid and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing, you know, it's, um, uh, yeah, well, I think that's, uh, that's probably the best way of putting it because it's, it's just hard to fathom it at all. That, uh, yeah, I don't, I do not understand what would drive a decision like that. You know, I mean, Mullenberg, who was the head of the company, the CEO during this time, he, he was asked to leave by the board. He wasn't even fired. He was asked to leave and he walked away with $62 million. Mm. Um, you know, I don't understand that decision either. Yeah. Uh, you know, for, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people watch this story and there's this disconnect because 346 people died. Right. Boeing is responsible Boeing and their, the, the executives there and the management made a series of decisions that um, are very clearly driven by uh, the desire to make profit and to make money. And 346 people die and nobody goes to prison and none of the management is really held to account. So why is it, you know, if you went and killed one person, you'd probably spend the rest of your life in prison. Why is a corporation protected? Why are the people who run corporations protected? Why, what is that? And what, what kind of priority is that? Why should that, why should corporations be held to different standards than human beings and the human beings who run those corporations? Why? Yeah. And I mean, I guess that raises the question, are you surprised there's not even a, a, why isn't there a bigger outcry, public outcry about these sort of things? Well, there's a huge public outcry. If you go on Twitter, it's yeah. an unprecedented, I mean, Newsweek just did a piece on on the response to the film around the world. And yeah. I mean, Twitter's going off on it. But, you know, again, it's, does that, you know, but meanwhile, Boeing stock is going up. Right. Yeah. So how out of touch is Wall Street and yeah. and how much valuation they're putting in this company when you're having such an outcry from people around the world who are outraged by this. Yeah. So, you know, I think that 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 disconnect, I mean, it's also it's like during COVID, you know, mm -hmm. all, all these people are losing their jobs. The economy is sinking and Wall Street's just going up and up and up like what how how disconnected is that entity from the rest of us and what does that mean and how how can we make more of you know how how can we get that in more of an alignment hmm. uh, sounds like the subject of another doc uh, yeah. that you're going to have to make um but to, i guess to maybe one last point on this is that and it in the end i mean boeing has only received barely a slap on the wrist from from this isn't isn't that correct yeah i mean the department of justice um you know had a case and they fined boeing 2.5 billion dollars but you know i think that was four percent of their um the money that they made that particular year right so mm. it sounds like a lot of money but in their in the grand scheme of things, it's uh, Congressman DeFazio who led the mm. investigation, called it a slap on the wrist in terms of like its impact on Boeing. Um, and a lot of that money, when you kind of dig into it, was money that they were paying to the airlines for grounding the plane. So it was the cost of not 
really delivering an entity that was what was mm. guaranteed to fly. So, you know, a, a fraction of that cost actually went to the families themselves. Um, and there was uh, an agreement in there that if Boeing didn't do anything else that was, you know, at this level of damning, that th there would be no, uh, they would be protected from a criminal prosecution. So nobody would be held accountable. So, you know, there's, a, uh, I think from the I don't want to speak on behalf of the families, but I think yeah. many of the families and many other people felt like um, that was not, again, in alignment with the horrors of what happened. Okay. I think that takes us to a point to give our, our listeners a break. Um, we'll be right back with Rory Kennedy. Downfall, The Case Against Boeing is the film now streaming on Netflix. If you enjoy Factual America, check out the Movie Maker podcast. That's all one word, Movie Maker. Where our friends at MovieMaker.com interview everyone from filmmakers just breaking in to A-listers like David Fincher and Edgar Wright about their movie-making secrets and behind-the-scenes tricks of the trade. They go deep and let the guests speak uninterrupted to get you the most film insight. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with award-winning filmmaker Rory Kennedy. Uh, she's just uh, come out with a film uh, produced and uh, directed, uh, Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. It's now streaming on Netflix. Uh, we were just talking about the, uh, the, the slap on the wrist that uh, Boeing's received and, and other, other things related to that. Um, I mean, maybe that we've kind of alluded to it already, but when you were, you know, as a filmmaker, when you're thinking about the next film you're going to make, what is what attracted you to this story? Why did you want to document this and, and now? Because um, I guess you have your probably have your choice of projects you could work on. Yeah, well, I mean, like everybody else, so many other people in the world, I fly. Um, yeah. And I, I really, I mean, it was really following the story of the two airplanes crashing, them being, you know, the same airplane, new airplanes, no weather conditions, you know, as, as um, Andy Pestor, our dogged journalist says, under eerily similar circumstances, and 346 people are dead. And yet the response from Boeing in the wake of that mm. was to really focus on blaming the pilots, it seemed. So mm. I felt like there was a lot more going on here um, that deserved some attention. I mean, part of it was to mm. get to, to the bottom of it, to understand what happened and to, um, in an effort to make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. So that's, in essence, that's what you would also like the legacy of this film to be. Is that, is that safe to say? That uh, people see this and then take action. I hope that people see this and take action. And, you know, we, uh, that action can take a lot of different forms. And, and the film doesn't advocate a particular action in part because... You know, what I want to do is really lay down the facts of the story mm. to show what happened. And then people see those facts and you respond in different ways. I saw these facts. I, as a documentary filmmaker, decided mm. to make a documentary about it, right? right? Andy Pastor, as a journalist, saw the facts and he 
decided to chase down this story for almost two years. DeFazio, yeah. a congressman, decided he was going to run an investigation. So, you know, other people might be activists and go out into the street. Other, You know, so I think we all have to kind of figure out what is our path to, mm. um, to making and demanding the changes um, individually. But I do think that the world's going to be a better place if, if we're all out there demanding it. Yeah. Speaking of the world, um, I wanted to um, look, a, if you don't mind, if we look ahead uh, a bit um, in terms of, if am I right to an understanding, it's based on IMDb, Are you? do you have a film about World War II refugees in, in the works coming up? I do. I have a film that I am um, working on right now about the global refugee crisis. So I'm you know, this we're eight days into a war in Ukraine. Could you have ever imagined how timely this? I mean, obviously, there's been Syrian refugees and refugees from the Middle East, but could you have ever imagined that war was going to be raging again in Europe when you started to make this film? I didn't. I really, I thought we had gone beyond that, honestly. It's just such an outrage and such a disappointment. And, you know, I just, uh, I'm really disgusted by Putin and his decision to to hmm. go after this, you know, wonderful, beautiful country and the Ukrainian people and kill so many people. I, I, I it's horrendous. I mean, as of I think yesterday, there were 650,000 people who were refugees as a result of this already. The hmm. projection is that it's going to be between three and five million people. That's right. Um, you know, so it's, it's going to really put a lot of strain on a system that's already, um, you know, we have 26.5 million refugees in the world today, 80 million mm. displaced people. So, you know, um, it's, it is, uh, a, a, for a whole range of reasons, an enormous disappointment. Yeah, and I mean, I hate to it it because uh, we're so it just has just started and it's such a it is such a horrific uh, set of events that are happening right now. So I guess it's it's kind of hard to ask questions that seem a bit cold in in response. But is this something that you're already taking on board in terms of telling the story that you're working on in terms of the the refugees? Is this I guess you can't help but include it in, in you know, yeah. this project. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that we're focusing on. So, you know, and of course, the Afghanistan um, situation yeah. occurred also while we were editing this. So the film, you know, keeps opening up again as we deal with, you know, more and more crises that are unfolding in front of us. But it's an, it's an important part of the story. And I think... You know, what we're really looking at in this film is uh, Western wealthy countries' responses to the mm. refugee crisis over time and um, looking at, the, at World War II in the context of initially being a refugee crisis that the Jewish people mm. in Germany in particular were, mm. were trying to find a place to go. Hitler had said, okay, fine, they can leave. But there was there were no countries that would accept them, 
Very few yeah. countries yeah. would accept them, right? So it, it, and then after World War II, we kind of came together with the United Nations and the uh, Global Refugee Conference to agree to terms of, you know, if people were in jeopardy, if they were facing something that could risk their lives in their own country, that they would be accepted in one of our countries. And we've really failed in that obligation. And even now with the Ukrainian situation, you know, I think it's, I think it's, and I would encourage all of us to monitor, you know, cause everybody's saying their hearts go out and they're empathetic and they're outraged, mm -hmm. but who's going to open their doors, right? Mm -hmm. And how much are, you know, Poland is the neighboring country. How much are we going to support Poland for doing that? Mm -hmm. Britain last I heard, I heard they were saying, well, they can come here if they have relatives who are already in our country. The United States, I'm not seeing opening our doors in any significant way yet. So I hope that changes. But, you know, let's let's see how many how many of these wealthy Western countries really open their doors in significant ways to to the Ukrainian people. My hope is that we do. Um, and then, you know, it then begs another question, which is, okay, which my hope is that we do this with the Ukrainians, but then, and, and we're certainly doing it more than we did with Afghanistan or mm -hmm. with Syria. And how much of this is based on, oh, well, these people look a little bit more like us, right? And right. we can relate. Is that going on here? And what are kind of some of the racist undertones of some of the, the policies and responses. So I think all of those questions are, um, are, are worth considering and, and keeping an eye on. Yeah. And I guess, uh, may I ask, uh, I guess now it's getting harder to say, but roughly when are you hoping to release this film? Well, exactly. It keeps opening up. So um, my hope is that it will be sometime uh, in the fall or winter of next year. Okay. So of 2023. Is that right? Yeah, probably in like the, probably the winter of 2023. So in like eight months from now. Okay. Okay. I see. Okay. Well, we look for, I mean, I, I think that's... But don't uh, quote me on that. No, we won't quote you. We don't, uh, I know there's... Uh, no, it's just great to have a filmmaker who can talk about a future project. They all almost always say, well, I've got something, but I can't really talk about it at the moment. So uh, it's great to uh, be able to, dis to discuss it. And I also just happen to come across it. And it just, it's such a timely issue that uh, we all need to to consider and, and to to discuss. So I'm, I'm so glad you're making that. Um, Thank you. Um, what else? Do you have anything else in the works? Um, uh, well, I do have another project, um, but I, 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 I'm not allowed to go into detail yeah. on that one. Okay. Another documentary I'm doing with Netflix. Um, and then I'm also started something called the Climate Emergency Fund a couple of years ago, which is a, a foundation that supports activists um, mm -hmm. who are causing a, a bit of disruption in the effort to protect our climate and our, our, our world. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we basically, we raise money and then we give it to activists who go out in the street and mm -hmm. um, do things to, to cause, to make sure that we're 
really focused on this issue. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I saw an interview with uh, John Kerry, actually, just uh, was filmed about a week or so ago, where he basically said, well, this is before the invasion, but even so, he said, "You Russia, Ukraine, notwithstanding, that was still, let's not forget, that's still probably the b- biggest issue facing us as a, a humankind. And so uh, it's uh, obviously for the very moment, at the moment, probably taking a bit of a backseat in terms of people's consciousness, but I think it's uh, obviously a very, very important thing. Yes, uh, and the IPCC, which is the international um, conglomeration of climate scientists, just came out with a, another report in the last week that um, is really showing, you know, the devastation that climate is and climate change is having in, and wreaking across the world right now to literally billions of people, and mm. the prediction that that's only going to get worse. Unless we do something about it, but we really have to do it now. And, you know, you see, and it's, it really shouldn't take a backseat to Ukraine and Russia because it's, it's all, it's it's all all the same thing, right? Because Russia has so much of the, of the energy source, right? And so how much are we going to really cut off Russia? How much does, is Russia going into the Ukraine have to do with energy and, you know, what can we do to reduce our reliance on that source of energy and move towards solar and wind and, and you know, sources of energy that are environmentally um, more healthful? And it's the Russian permafrost that's also melting, that's releasing all kinds of releasing methane into the atmosphere that's also contributing to global yes, warming so which is 10 times more you know potent and to than carbon and yeah. is is a significant concern so um so i think there's you know it's it's still all in the mix and then you see these bombs going off and the environmental damage just done mm-hmm. in a in a war zone um situation so um you know obviously first and foremost is is our love and empathy and compassion mm. for those folks who are who are being harmed and killed you know and that is just horrendous um mm. but i think there are a lot of issues in the mix here that we need to be focused on well and i think you're helping us focus on them so uh do appreciate your uh, your efforts for that on that uh on that front and to say, unfortunately, it looks like we've, uh, I think we've come to the end of our time together. So just wanted to thank you so much for, for coming on to the podcast. It's very much appreciated. Uh, we'd love if once these uh, other docs come out, we'd love to have you on again, if, uh, if we haven't scared you off. And uh, just to thank uh, Rory Kennedy again, award-winning filmmaker of Downfall, The Case Against Boeing, streaming on Netflix. Uh, Rory, thank you for coming on to Factual America. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. It's great talking with you. Take care and Take uh, care. S- stay safe. All right. You too. If something's not right, you need to find it and get it fixed or get it corrected. To ensure safety, finding things was what you're supposed to do. But instead of fixing problems, everything was about speed. Everything was about getting stuff done. Let's move it. Let's get it done. You can't stop. You can't slow down used to be when you raise your hand and say, we got a problem here, it would say, yeah, you're right, we're going to fix it. After the merger with McDonnell Douglas and the Airbus coming on, Boeing quit listening to their employees. 
So every time I'd raise my hand and say, hey, we got a problem here, they would attack the messenger and, and ignore the message. I'd like to give a shout-out to Sam and Joe Graves at Intersound Audio in Eskrick, England, in deepest, darkest Yorkshire. A big thanks to Nevin Apanovich, podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show. And finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas. You can reach out to us on YouTube, social media, or directly by going to our website, www.factualamerica.com and clicking on the Get in Touch link. And as always, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.